The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Welcome to Prescriptions for Healing Conflict. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's been an attorney mediator for 26 years, and during that time she's resolved thousands of disputes as a neutral conflict healer. She's a member of the Orange County Superior Court Mediation Panel, and she's been a law professor of negotiations and mediation and presently teaches negotiations right here at UCI. She's the author of Negotiations Breakthroughs and co-author of Stepping Stones to Success and several other books. To listen to previous interviews, see upcoming guests, download podcasts, and learn more, visit www.conflicthealing.com. So Mari, what's your show about today? Oh, Lloyd, our show today is about holistic lawyering. Now, I know some of you out there are going, what? That's an oxymoron. I can't believe it. But I think I told you, Lloyd, about this wonderful woman that I actually met a couple years ago in Chicago at the Lawyers Conference when we were having the Alliance of Holistic Lawyering there. And then I just recently was in beautiful Asilomar, California, and got to attend a fabulous workshop that was presented by Kim Wright. And I've just been thrilled to get to know her, all the great things that she does. And she has this wonderful book that I have right here in my hands called Lawyers as Peacemakers, Practicing Holistic Law Problem Solving. Practicing Holistic Problem Solving Law by Kim Wright. This was an American Bar Association book. Let me tell you a little bit about Kim and her life. It has always been about collaboration and kind of going outside the box to find new ways for nurturing outcomes to happen. And in 1993, Kim met a lawyer who inspired her when he told her that his divorce clients were friendly at the end of proceedings and that he practiced law while granting dignity to everyone in the process. And over the years, she experimented with many holistic, collaborative approaches in her own law practice. And she created a holistic divorce and family law center with counseling, legal services, mediation, and a social worker manager. And she she's just done such tremendous things. In 1999, she was in a course called Power and Contribution. And the assignment was to create a project that was so big that it was impossible. So that's all Kim had to, dear, to hear was that it was impossible. So she took this impossible dream and she decided to transform the legal profession and she couldn't she knew that she couldn't do it alone so she began to network with other peacemaking lawyers and she wrote an informational website called renaissancelawyer.com which received over a hundred thousand visitors in the first year and back in 2001 she founded the international organization of peacemaking healing and problem-solving lawyers called the Renaissance Lawyer Society. Now, Kim coaches, and she does so many different things with with lawyers and non-lawyers, and she just does a terrific job. And then we, as I told you, she has this new book that came out just last year in April called Lawyers as Peacemakers. So 
but without further ado, I just want to get and have you guys talk to her and listen to her and see all the wonderful things she has to say. But she also has a great website called CuttingEdgeLaw.com. So whether you're a lawyer or you're an aspiring lawyer, or maybe you just have a lawyer that you think really should be a little bit more of a holistic person, um, why don't you just take a look at that? And especially those people on our campus who are considering the practice of law will be really thrilled to hear what Kim has to say. So thank you, Kim, for joining us all the way from Colorado. Thank you, Mari. It's good to be here. Well, let me, let me ask you something here. How is it that you decided to write this wonderful book, Lawyers as Peacemakers? Well, it actually um, didn't happen the way uh, most books happen. What happened was that I, about three years ago, I decided to make a documentary about this movement in law. And um, I uh, came across this guy who was also in transition and he said his dream was to make a documentary of people making a difference. And so I just thought that was so synchronistic. And we made this plan to go on the road for three months and interview lawyers and make a documentary. And in the process of doing that, we interviewed people who just, um, like, inspired us so much. We just didn't have the heart to cut their interviews into little sound bites. And we decided, well, we'll make a website and we'll put, put the whole interview up there. And uh, we ended up um, interviewing about 120 lawyers and having about 300 and I think it's up to 375 different video clips of, um, of lawyers who were uh, pioneers and peacemakers in this movement. And, um, and so um, about a year after we started our, quote, three-month journey, um, we uh, stopped and edited and actually uploaded these videos and um, my business partner, Michael, said, you know, you ought to let the ABA know about this. And I said, oh, it's too soon for the ABA. We really need to uh, be, you know, down the path a little more. And within a week, the ABA had called me and asked me to write a book. Um, they said that they, uh, that they knew that a lot of this was happening in the law, but they didn't know how big it was. And that our website had helped them to see the transformation that was going on in law, and they thought there ought to be a book about that. And so, um, so we uh, made an agreement to, uh, that I would write the book, and um, I, I, I wrote it, and um, it came out in April. And before I even had my copy, it was a bestseller uh, for the ABA. Oh, gosh. That, that, that shows you you were in the right place. You did the right thing, and you're like our Pied Piper here of holistic <laughs> <Yeah>. law. <laughs> so let's, let's talk to our audience about what you mean by lawyers as peacemakers. Well, the thing is that all systems evolve. And then the law, um, like all other systems, has been evolving for a long time. Before we had our current uh, adversarial system, we had, like, armed combat. We had jousting. We had dueling. Uh, you know, if you had a conflict with somebody, you, sent your, uh, you either went over and um, fought with them or you sent somebody in your place to go over and fight with them. And if it wasn't worth dying for, there really wasn't a whole lot of different ways to resolve things, um, and um, in, uh, you know, maybe going to one of the village elders or something like that, but there wasn't um, you know, a unified system in place. And so we actually created this um, great invention of the adversarial legal system as a society, um, and, um, and it was less destructive. And um, you know, uh, instead of 
fighting with arms. We actually fought with words and positions and principles, and we um, you know, spent hundreds of years creating this system based on analysis and order and um, a lot of values that are very important to society. But like any other system, it can't remain static. And so what we've seen is that we kind of threw away some of what worked, uh, you know, throwing out the baby with the bathwater in terms of some of the ancient tribal um, community-based and, and very humanistic kinds of approaches. And, um, and so uh, we've been bringing those back in. And then we've also been inventing new models that are uh, based on our current societal values and, um, and are more humanistic and are kind of bringing in the values that are missing. And so I, I would say that our trajectory has been towards peacemaking all along. And, uh, and so that's just, um, that's just where we're going. So the book looks at sort of these new, uh, sometimes ancient new models <laughs> of, um, of conflict resolution and wisdom and uh, how we live together. Um, I think that the basis of law is really about relationships. It's about how we live together as um, as neighbors and um, on the global scene. And um, and so these these tools that are ta- that I talk about in the book are about that and um, and are focused on that. And um, you know, uh, I know, Mari, you know that less than two percent of cases actually go to trial, exactly. even if they're litigated. Mm-hmm. And so why, why do we spend all of our energy learning how to litigate when 98% of it is really, um, you know, we need a different toolbox? Yes. And so, th- so that's what the book's about. Um, among, I mean, it, it's actually kind of um, a catch-all for all sorts of holistic things, but that's, that's the backbone of it. Yeah, and when you're talking about holistic, let's explain to everyone listening, what we mean by holistic and what does it mean to be a holistic lawyer? I know we talked about that just a few weeks ago in Asilomar, so that, uh, it's very timely to talk about that again now. Well, it's, uh, to be, it, it's funny because for many years, the um, presidents and board members of the International Alliance of Holistic Lawyers actually refused to define the term. And they said that they believed that each lawyer should define it for themselves, and so they didn't, they didn't want to put out a definition. So I'm going to talk about my definition, um, knowing that there's a whole spectrum of definitions out there. Okay, that sounds good. So uh, for me, um, because I'm a systems thinker, I see how all the different pieces of a system um, affect each other. So um, a a legal problem just doesn't spring up all by itself. You don't get up in the morning and say, I think I'm going to go sue my neighbor. (laughs) Unless something else has happened to that relationship. Exactly. And yes, there may be a legal claim, but even if you win the legal claim, then um, you're, you're still not going to have um, good feelings in your neighborhood, I mean, particularly if you sue your neighbor and, and, um, and, and, and fight it all the way through court. You're not going to have um, a peaceful, harmonious neighborhood. No, you're probably going to have to move. <laughs> you're probably going to have to move. Right, right. And so, you know, the, the lawsuit is a symptom of the underlying relationship. And so I as a holistic lawyer, look at that bigger picture. And I ask questions about things like, well, what would you like for this relationship to look like in five years? And, um, and, and tell me what happened before that. Um, and, and I get a bigger picture. Um, and some of the things don't have anything to do with the law, but are, but are really the core of what's going on. And so that's, that's 
you know, that broader view is what I consider um, holistic. Um, I also bring in a lot of tools that are not, quote, uh, uh, lawyer tools in um, communication skills and, um, and, you know, understanding of human dynamics, conflict resolution kinds of skills that we aren't taught in law school. So for me, that's another part of it. Right. And you remember the quote by, by Abraham Lincoln about lawyers should be peacemakers? You know, go and, and be peaceful with your neighbor. Resolve the disputes with your neighbor. He preached that all over the place. And we've had even our chief justice said that we should be healers of conflict. So, you know, I mean, really and truly, when you look at it as a society, a, a conscious, a higher conscious society, wants peace. And how do you get peace? But you start out with these holistic lawyers who help their own clients to be peaceful. Well, and, and really, um, while we say we want peace, when we're in the um, morass of the emotions, the anger, th- there's the anger, the disappointment, the hurt, you know, all, all of that, we may not be in touch with that. Right. And as, and as holistic lawyers, we can actually understand that dynamic as well yes. and give the emotion a place to be expressed yes. without uh, using it to beat somebody up or having the legal system as the club that you're beating somebody over the head when actually what's going on is an emotional issue. Right, exactly. Don't act out your anger by spending a fortune in a court battle. Exactly. So you were starting to talk a little bit about collaboration. Let's talk about what collaborative law is? Well, most of the new approaches grew from one lawyer saying that something wasn't working and, and something needed to change. So in the case of collaborative law, it was Stu Webb. And Stu um, was practicing family law and, um, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and it wasn't working for him and his clients. And he really thought he was going to have to leave the law. And, and he decided to experiment um, he, you know, basically, well, if I'm going to leave anyway, let me see if I can actually invent something new here. Right. And, um, and so he, uh, he started experimenting with settling cases. And um, one of the things that happened that was uh, one of those pivotal moments for, for him is he was settling one case after another with a, uh, a colleague who was a very dear friend of his. And then they got the case from, you know, that, that made all the difference in the world, uh, that they went to war with each other, and it destroyed their friendship. And he, and he looked at how it was destructive to everybody in the process. He didn't want to be destroying families. He didn't want to be destroying his own relationships and his own health. Exactly. So he, he started experimenting with, well, what if we actually created the model that we were settlement attorneys? And, he, and, um, and they... Um, you know, over the many years since then, it's evolved a lot. But the, the cornerstone is that the two lawyers and their clients at the beginning of the process sign a contract that says, if we don't settle in this process, we have to start all over with new lawyers. The lawyers are not going to trial for us at all. And, and it shifts everything in the interactions because the lawyers are no longer trying to um, prepare for trial while they're trying to settle. It's kind of a schizophrenic thing when you're trying to settle a case and prepare for trial at the same time. And so the, the contract allows for them to put everything, all the information out on the table, uh, work with it, uh, bring in tools, bring in experts, um, and actually... Um, problem solve instead approach. of... Yeah, problem solve it. And problem solve it. And, and look for, is there some way that we can all win here? Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of the cases that I have as an example is I had a guy who was a uh, long-distance truck driver um, and the father of uh, seven children, and his wife was the stay-at-home mom. And when she got upset, she left, left the state and moved the family somewhere else. Um, and she had gone to a lawyer who said, well, you, you don't have any claim on the house. The house belongs to his mother. And that's why she had to move. Uh, and when they went through the process, it actually turned out that his mother wanted the children to live there, too. And, and so his mother came in as um, a part of the process and actually deeded the house to the wife and kids. That's a, that's a good answer. for. So the mother who owned the house had the right to have her own intention be manifested. And 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 the long distance truck driver really didn't need the house. He stayed. With, he went ahead and stayed with his mom. He, but he got to be a part of his children's lives. Yes. The, uh, the mother of the children um, actually got to, you know, come back and and be taken care of um, in the way that she, they had been while um, while they were married, and to do, and to create her own life, knowing that she had a place to live. And, and also, that probably endeared her to the. To the grandma, so that grandma got to see the kids. And grandma got to see the kids. Everybody won in that case, but it was not something a court could do. Right, right. And, and that's the beauty of it, that you can get creative and you can get, you know, really into the meat of what do people really want. Do they really want to fight? Do they really want to hurt each other? Do they really want to have peace of mind and peace of heart? Well, and that question, how do you want this relationship to look in five years, which I ask all my clients. yes. Um, was part of resolving that. Like, well, I would, I want to be in my kids' lives, and you know, she can do whatever she wants. She's a good mom, but I want to be in my kids' lives. Well, if that's the goal, then how are we going to create that and be creative about it? Right. We are speaking with wonderful Kim Wright, who's an attorney, and she is the author of Lawyers as Peacemakers: Practicing, Practicing Holistic. Problem Solving Law. This is just a wonderful book of various aspects of how we can have a much higher consciousness about resolving disputes and conflict resolution in this, you know, in this society. Let's talk about what therapeutic jurisprudence is and and how do you define that as it, you know, as part of the healing profession that we're talking about? Well, one of the challenges in this movement is that all of these approaches have sort of a common core and so when I talk about them, you can, you can hear the common core, and, and maybe you won't hear the differences as much because I don't focus on those. But, um, but therapeutic jurisprudence, or TJ, actually looks at the impact of the legal system, um, whether it's therapeutic or not. And so it can be used in divorce, just as we were just talking about collaborative law, um, and, you know, really look at, you know, how do, how do we focus on healing this family? Or it can be used in, in a number of different things. Um, some of the topics, like holistic law, um, is considered a, an umbrella term that could be um, applied to all the peacemaking approaches, and therapeutic jurisprudence does too. Uh, but they're not exact. But they're not exactly the same. Right. right. Um, so you know, given that we're going to have an impact, how can we um, heal in the best way possible? So one of the ways that that has shown up in the therapeutic jurisprudence movement is in the problem-solving courts. So in problem-solving courts, they actually look to see what is the root of the problem. Um, and uh, a, a great example is the drug court. So somebody writes bad checks because they have a drug problem, 
you can put them in jail for, you know, 30 days for writing the bad check, or you can look to see what's, what's, what's there to do about this drug problem. Right. And, and use the criminal case as the backdrop for uh, resolving the actual drug issue. So there are about 2,700 drug um, and problem-solving courts now in the world. Um, they are uh, absolutely creating miracles. People say that, that um, the drug courts saved their lives because they were, uh, they were addicts, their lives didn't work, and the drug court gave them the resources, the uh, addiction specialists, the um, positive reinforcement and so forth that allowed them to get back on track. You know, I interviewed a judge recently who became a holistic judge, and that's exactly what he was doing. He was looking at the whole human and trying to find out why people were doing what they were doing and giving them a second chance and giving them, you know, specific, uh, you know, things that they had to do to come back to report back to them. Right. But he also built up a relationship, and one of the things that he was telling me was that he had shown dignity to every person in his court. And that was, yeah, and and giving and looking at them as a whole person instead of just this criminal that's coming in because they did what they did. And and it made a tremendous influence, you know, on, on, you know, people not coming back to his court for crime, but coming back to his court and then telling him how they, how well they've done. So it meant a lot to him personally as a human being as well. I was talking to one drug court judge um, in Utah, and um, he said he was getting his teeth cleaned, and the and, and the dental hygienist was crying, and it was kind of like, well, you know, doesn't know what's going on here, but you know, <laughs> he, he didn't, you know, his mouth is open, he can't ask. <laughs> and finally, she um, she said, um, I want you to know that my sister, I think it was her sister, went through your drug court. Mm. And we got my sister back, and I will be forever grateful for you because mm. her life is back on track, and it wouldn't have happened without the drug court. And just think about this. What if, if her brother or family member was sent to jail and he was really mean to him? He might have had some real problems with his teeth later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, uh, in some places, the drug court judges are like, are like celebrities because of um, you know the impact they're making on the community. And, and it's so, so much... Um, more satisfying for the judge. It's, it's yes. so much more fulfilling. And um, no, no pun intended with fulfilling. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and if you think 2,700 courts, and, and each one probably has hundreds of, uh, of people going through there, the difference that makes. In both Minnesota and Colorado, I read in the news um, that, um, that they had overbuilt prisons. And when they were interviewing people about, you know, I mean, the way they build prisons is really kind of scary. I've heard that they go and they count fourth graders, oh. and um, and then they know how many prisons to build, and then uh, and then they also, um, uh, you know, it's just the way like they they have to plan so many years in advance to have a prison ready, um, and so they had overbooked. I, I'm going to get the numbers not quite exact, but in I think it was in in Minnesota. There were 5,000 prisoners short, and in Colorado, 8,000, or it may have been the other way around. And when they were interviewing people and asking them how this happened, that they had overbuilt prisons, they said that the recidivism rate because of drug courts was so down. Isn't that something? That, that is did, so that wonderful. That they didn't have people in prison anymore. That is just wonderful. 
So, I mean, so, you know, like, so do you want to be um, a court that heals or do you want to be a court that just punishes people and warehouses? And they're back there again and and they're back in court, right? Yes. And that, and, and that's really, that's uh, the judges we talked about that there were, were real pioneers in uh, starting these courts. That's what they reported. They said the same people kept coming before them and they couldn't figure it out. And so then they, they learned about addiction and they learned why and they learned um, that by working with the addiction experts, they could actually create a court that um, that addressed the underlying problem. Incredible! It's wonderful. So let's talk about the prob- the paradigm shift that you see. What is that? Is is it really happening? And is it happening fast enough? And and what is it? Well, you know, I use those words in my book, and I and I still sometimes use them. But I'm beginning to see it more in the um, realm of an evolutionary state. You know, um, in the adversarial system, we're focused on the rights. We're, you know, we're analyzing. We're, you know, we're putting in systems so that we can treat everybody just the same. Um, and and that's kind of, you know, in reaction to uh, the vigilanteism and combat and all that that came before the um, uh, the adversarial system. But um, but now uh, we're in a, we're in a different society, and we're beginning to see what's missing. And so those these so-called new models of law are really, I think, just sort of um, a reflection of evolution in a system and then evolution in society. You know, um, we're much more concerned about uh, human values now than order because we've already handled that order piece in, in, in most cases. You know, the, the predictability of the court and all that kind of stuff. Now right. we're starting to look at, well, when do we not want it to be that way? You know, when do we not want structured sentencing and restructure out and, you know, all of these kinds of things that take the power away from the people who um, are working in the court system. And, you know, how can we give back sort of that, uh, the community some say-so? And so um, if, if there's any paradigm shift, I think it's in, in um, really responding to the values that we have now. Yes. Speaking of, of values and, and how we deal with conflict, you talk about radical forgiveness. Why don't you explain to my audience, what do you mean by radical well, forgiveness? Um, Colin Tipping uh, wrote a book on radical forgiveness, and I've met him and um, visited with him and kind of keep, kept up with him over the years. And, and so I'm just going to talk about my understanding of his work, uh, which I find very interesting, and that is that, um, that there's, there are all, all kinds of levels of forgiveness. Um, and, you know, there's just saying the words, um, and there's, you know, a shift in being. A lot of people um, are speaking of forgiveness now in terms of it's not for the other person. It's really for you. Right. You to, know, re- the, to be released of carrying this around, this, like this bag of, of, of pain and anger that you're carrying around. Yeah. Right, right. It's like, like what is it, the, um, the expression, you're, you're eating poison and expecting the other person to die? Right. So when you forgive, you give it up. And so, so giving it up, um, I have a friend whose daughter was murdered, and she talks about it in terms of um, giving up all hope of a different past. Yes, yes. And, um, and so you can't change the past. Right. And so in radical forgiveness, it, um, um, as I understand it, understand it, is understanding that everything happens for a reason. Right. And that, um, and that, um, and that it's for our highest good even when we can't understand it and that if somebody has done us wrong that um if um that um 
our forgiving them is actually our accepting our own path. I think that some people would actually go so far as as to say that the people who have done them wrong have actually given up a lot of their own well-being to do that wrong in order to teach the lesson. You know what? We are out of time. I just want to give your website, CuttingEdgeLaw.com, and people can also go there and see all the wonderful things that you're doing. And then they can also uh, link to see your book, right? Lawyers as Peacemakers? It's there. All right. Terrific. Kim, thank you so much for joining us, and we'll have you back again and keep up all that wonderful work, and I hope to see you again real soon. I do, too. Okay, you you take care. Yes. All right. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8.30 a.m., and also visit our website at conflicthealing.com where you can see our upcoming guests. You can download podcasts. You can also link to our guests that are coming up and you can listen to archived interviews and you can find out more about conflict healing in your own life. Thank you so much and join us next week. Bye. It's about trust. in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.